folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And after six years of just woodshedding and running the running the break with uh, luminary artists of all sorts, I get to pivot back to my true nature, my original true nature, which was sports, uh, and more specifically the the loyalty and the camaraderie and the sharing that existed at a certain time in our cultural heritage and our history. Uh, I get to go deep today with a prolific uh, college and pro basketball player, also a tremendous coach, and a guy who's still creating, still doing his thing, and uh, just an honor to connect with him. Henry Bibby, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, uh, thanks for having me on. I love basketball as much as you do, okay? So I, I feel where you are. Well, you know, I just I wanted you to talk – a little bit uh, just to start i mean you guys had these prolific teams uh with ucla going back to the early 70s just for the point of reference i was born in 1978 but i i I wanted you to go back and talk about a specific time in that run of success when it you realized that it was actually the mental part of the game was actually more difficult than the physical part of the game uh, you know, so so true, Jake. Um, I, you know, I had um, you know a lot of that in my background—the discipline that that was needed to get to another level. And once I um, went to UCLA, working with Coach Wooden, it just things just happened that way. Um, they recruited people that wanted to win, um, and and he taught us how to play. It's, it's an art that's been lost today. Uh, in young people growing up. The AAU is really good for a lot of the young people, but it's also bad at times for, for young people because you get away from the grassroots of basketball, and that's where we need to stay uh, for kids to get better. And that's why I'm involved uh, in my program now with the Dribble Pro Basketball that I invented, and we can talk about that later. But getting back to the grassroots is what what I've always done, and it's kept me in the game for so many years as a basketball player and the fundamental grassroots as a coach. I, so, even though the, going, through, going through, you, yeah. go ahead. I'm no, sorry, I, well, you know, this is the point. I see coming from, I'm a Gen Xer, and, you know, I mean, I have two daughters that are 11 and 4. So, I actually would counter you by saying it's, I think the grassroots are more difficult today because we are not as mentally strong. And so, I was trying to ask you before about a period of time in that winning streak. When you realized that your mental toughness was far great, had to be far greater than anything physical. You know, it, it was the the mental toughness, and and that's the makeup, the you know where your background, where you come from. But again, uh, it's not being taught anymore. The the grassroots of basketball is not taught. You know, you have these kids that are so athletic, and uh, they go to college for one year, and then they move on to the NBA, and. There's, there's no really no teaching, only being in one year. But, you know, it's a business. All this is a business. That's what it boils down to, first and foremost. It's not about really teaching the kids anymore. 
Uh, it's about now the projection of, of all these young men uh, and women who, who have potential to be great you know, three, four, five years down the road. And that's when they're developed, opposed to uh, years ago at the root of basketball, uh, they stayed in college for four years. So a four-year kid uh, is, is, who has a lot of talent is, is much further along years ago than a kid that plays one year now and goes in. Talking to Henry Bibby here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Let's just break down. I think this is important because, I mean, I want you to talk about, well, how did John, John Wooden recruit you originally? How did, how did he find you? Well, you know, there was a, there was a lady in South Carolina who, who knew of me, and she knew of another basketball player that went to UCLA uh, named uh, uh, Kenny Washington out of South Carolina. So she saw me play, and she recommended me to UCLA, and UCLA, you know, they kept seeing my name come up as one of the top players in the South, and that's how it kind of all got started. They came back to see me play the first game. They didn't think I was good enough to probably play at UCLA, but they and you know I visited with my coach. Uh, you know after the game, he said, "Hey, just go and play your game." So the next night, I had like fifty points. And, uh, <laughs> you know, UCLA said, uh, "You know this guy can play for us," and that's when it all started. Well, it was a great, it was a big deal for me to leave. You know the South in nineteen sixty eight, uh, where integration and segregation was was just starting, uh, and to move to California, I had a high school uh, graduation class of 19 kids. There were 150 kids in my high school. So I went from that to 40,000 student body at UCLA in a metropolis. So uh, life was different. Life was changing. But that's how I kind of got started. And the the drive that I I had received from my parents, uh, you know, pushed me and and, and made me go. So there was nothing that was going to stop me. I was very determined. To, to be the best basketball player I could be and to uh, get the best education that I could get. Did, could you spend a moment, I think it's important, you talk about the grassroots and the lineage of, 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 the, the, of, the, of the game of basketball, but you go back to your folks, uh, their generation was one of civil disobedience. I mean, I, I talk to the Cats all the time, the musicians, about having to overcome cultural bias, uh, you know, people have, can you talk about the segregation, how fierce it was, and if there was a defining moment when you saw your father or mother stand up for themselves and embolden you to say, we are all human beings and nobody deserves to be treated the way that African-American people were being treated in the South at that time? Well, you know, they never stood up uh, because uh, there was a lot of um, uh, suppression at the time. Um, you know, in the South, and uh, uh, black people did not really have a, a voice. Uh, black people didn't stand up, so they never stood up. But they knew that there were opportunities out there for their kids, and that's what they thought about with me. I had a uh, my aunt, you know, finished college. My my mom and dad had third and fourth grade education, so they never went to school. But they knew how important it was for their kids to move on. And my two brothers ended up. You know, graduating from school, like I said before, my my two aunts went on to finish college. But, uh, it was just a uh, it, it was a great opportunity that they saw for me to uh, to move on to to do something uh, better than being a farmer, you know, and sharecropping and right. all that. They didn't right. want to do that. So uh, that's the the that's the era that I came from. And uh, again, I had parents that 
uh, didn't want me to be that. They wanted me to be something bigger and better than what they were. Uh, and and they, you know, inside saw the world changing, and they they put me in a situation where I could be successful, and that was at UCLA. Uh, and, and I could, down the road, compete with, with other people and other cultures to, to survive. That's what it was all about at the time, that they didn't even know that they were doing that they did. Well, that's that's what I'm trying to get at here, because we have now created a situation in our country where, you know, you go off and get, quote unquote, an education, as I did, you know, you go to college. But I mean, your parents were not, quote unquote, educated, and they didn't, quote unquote, advocate or stand up because they probably would would have been killed. But inside, the question is, you they had a drive and 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 they put it on you and they they emphasized it with you did you as a kid before you went off to ucla did you say mom dad why why won't you why won't you stand like what what was their response when you said why i don't want to take this anymore i'm I'm tired of this stuff what would they say to you they said we're doing this for you i'm just trying to get to this point of saying that their social consciousness was not wrapped in academia it was wrapped in being just sharecroppers i mean not even getting paid sometimes and 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 instead of you know instead of pushing back they didn't they and and they did it for their kids and i just want to know what you used to say to if it was frustrating for you if you wanted them to push back and what they would say to you well you know i i didn't know the difference myself so I, you know, I wasn't in a position to push back at the time. I remember my brother would, would come back home. Uh, he had gone to Vietnam, and he said, why do you say yes, sir, to people? Why do you say yes, sir, to the white people? And this was just what happened in the South at that time. You know, you talk about uh, in the uh, in the 50s. Uh, you know, so you're, you're talking about something that I hadn't moved on, that this is what my parents grew up with their whole life. Uh, you know, my dad was born in, I think, 1929 and all that. So he's born during that time of the year where you don't say anything. You don't you don't say anything back. And you call everybody sir and yes, sir. That was just the way it was. So I, I didn't know any difference myself until I went off to UCLA to see there was a totally different world. And the prejudice wasn't wasn't out there as much as it was in the South. So, so. Uh, you know, I, I moved in, and when I moved to Los Angeles, I moved in with a white family, and I locked my door every night because I knew that something bad was going to happen. And I ended up, you know, thinking that, you know, all people are the same. All people are good. All people are bad. A lot of people are good. A lot of people are bad. So I went the whole spectrum of not being involved at all with, with uh, the white race of people to loving the white race of people because... The family that I lived with treated me special. They treated me like I was human, which I was. You know, they treated me that way. They loved me, and I ended up loving the family that I lived with. That years before, I never thought that would happen, or even live in a live in to live in a house with with white people or eat with white people. So my life has come, you know, full circle around. Where now I look at people as being people. I don't I don't see any color as I grew up. You know, seeing color. As I move through my spectrum of life, I don't see any color anymore. It's not any color out there for me. People are people. You know, good people, uh, bad people. It comes in all races. It doesn't matter. No, I, 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 that's an inspirational story. First of all, just the idea that you went off and stayed with a family 
uh, is so unorthodox compared to today when you just be stuffed into a dorm. But you still, I mean, did would you say, John, like John Wooden, could you talk about, did he come to see you at South Carolina or were they sending scouts over there? When was the first time you actually connected with that cat? Well, you know, um, uh, they had a, a recruit, Jay Cardi, rest in peace, who passed away in mm-hmm. May, yep. uh, came to recruit me uh, for UCLA. And Coach Wooden would do a basketball camp in Bowie Creek, North Carolina, which is probably 100 miles from me every summer. So in the process of him going to the camp, he stopped in to see my family and, and to talk about UCLA. And he talked about how great my family was, how what down-to-earth people they were. And he was that way. And he grew up, you know, in Martinville, Indiana, which is very prejudiced as well. But he he didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. Uh, this was a, a fine Christian man who came in, in my home and uh, saw my family for who they were. And they saw him for who he was. So it, it was a great relationship of getting started and and he came back that way and, and saw me play, and um, he wanted me to come out, out that way to go to school. So I came out uh, to California and, um, you know, didn't look back. I mean, it was a just a super experience with all the people, and my total life changed about everything. I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting that people can move from one economic background to another <laughs> yeah, right. and, and blossom, you know, and blossom. It's unbel- no, it's it's absolutely. This is totally inspiring. But for me, like in today's world, you get. I mean, there's this. You know, hyper reactive. We have. You know, we're saturated with information. You know who the recruits are. Uh, that you know, a lot of times cats now. I mean, who knows if if Henry Bibby was playing in 2017, you might have made a jump right to the NBA now. But I mean, how intrinsically could you just talk to the audience worldwide about how how you were discovered? Because there, what we were not fully interconnected at that time. I mean, and the fact is that that cats from across the country, at the time in you know the Golden State, they came on your radar. I mean, how did that even? How did that happen? You're down in, in rural South Carolina. Well, you know, it's just it's connections. There, there's, you know, they've had uh, basketball reports for years and years that I had talked to uh, my freshman coach at UCLA, uh, Gary Cunningham. And he said, "Your name. We saw your name come up all the time on this list as being one of the top players in North Carolina. But you're kind of so far away, and and there are so many good basketball players in California that they didn't recruit really outside of California. You know, they went and got uh, Kareem Jabbar, uh, at Lu- uh, Lucius Allen out of Kansas City, and eventually Kenny Washington came from South Carolina. So they didn't do much." And Mike Warren from Indiana, but not a lot of recruiting outside of California because there's so many junior colleges and high school uh, in California. But again, this lady made the phone call for me. You know, it's always somebody watching you. <laughs> I dig, I dig, man, I dig. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. You know it's like musicians; they can be found in the backwoods. <laughs> Eventually, they're going to be found. If you're good, you're going to be found. So I was kind of found that way. You know, with my name kept coming up. You know, people started calling on my behalf. Newspaper articles come out. And that's how it kind of got started. And, you know, with the blink of an eye uh, and sitting down with, you know, my family, my high school coach, uh, my principal, making the decision to come to uh, California and to play for UCLA, just turned my life around. Now, if I had to do it again looking back, 
not sure if I would do it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really exploring life, uh, and and not uh, you know I never flown an airplane until I came to California at, at age uh, eighteen years old. So everything was new. I never had a steak. I, I didn't know what a steak was. You know. What were what were pancakes? I never knew anything like that. <laughs> Wait, so, you never had a country fried. Never had any meat in uh, in in South Carolina. We had real good meat. We didn't have the meat they make in California. <laughs> no, we had the real, yeah, exactly, man. The good old country ham. You know, the country <laughs> ham with the bone in it, and it's been salted in the smokehouse. It's been hanging for oh, months. Love it. Uh, oh, I love so, it. So you know that that's the type of life I've been living to, and I remember. When I first came to California, I never ate with these people that I was living with. There was a place called Tiny Nailers in Westwood. And every day, every morning, I was working during the summertime, and that's why they wanted me to come out to make some extra money. So I always go to Tiny Nailers uh, during the summertime in the morning to get me real, real breakfast. And my breakfast ended up being fried chicken, okay? Fried chicken is what I love. That sounds great, man. Uh, it sounds make, real good. They, yeah. didn't make anything else, they didn't make anything else that I wanted to eat. So, you know. But, um, you know, my whole life changed and my, my whole outlook on people uh, changed. And, and, you know, it's just love for people in general, not just a certain race of people. You love people, people who treat you good, people who treat you nice, come in all colors. And that's how I made the change over to start dealing with people and and seeing people for who they really are. Talking to Henry Bibby, having a ball here on the Jake Feinberg show. This 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 winning streak that occurred. What was the state of the team like? I mean, did 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 Coach Wooden talk to you and say, you know, where were you? Where was the team at before you got there? And what kind of ascension did it take off? I mean, did it did did it really take off the year you got there? Well, you know, they had won uh, a couple of championships with Walt Hazard and Gail Goodrich in the 60s, early 60s, 64, 65, I believe. And before I got there, Kareem Jabbar had won like three championships. So they were on, uh, they had won, you know, four, five, six championships when I got there. So we kind of carried it on. We kind of carried the history on when I got there. We won, I won three championships. Uh, we were 88 wins and three losses during my uh, three years playing at UCLA. And, and I think Coach Wooden just wanted to lose those three games because we always won. And he would, <laughs> he would always say, you know, we want a few games close. We might want to lose a game just to, to get us back on track again. This guy was so far advanced in his time. Uh, it's incredible. And that's why I've I tried to take – a lot of what Coach Wooden has done and bottle it up uh, and give it back to the young people and the parents who are interested in their kid, you know, learning how to play and be a better basketball player, if that's what they want to be. I mean, Coach Wooden talked about you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to put in the time and the effort and you have to be smart about which direction you're going to go to make it happen. Can you talk about a specific encounter you've had recently with either youth or parents where you've used some of that ball of, of, of enlightenment that Wooden gave you? Well, you know, I did it when I was at USC. A lot of that I did, uh, you, know, we, you know, he had some sayings like, uh, you know, discipline yourself where others don't have to. You know, stuff like that, those sayings is what I carried over uh, to the parents that come in. And, 
uh, he always had an open door policy to talk to the families because he would say, you know, these are, these are kids. You, know, you need to talk to talk to the, the parents and let the parents know what you're thinking is. And I was opposed by a lot of my coaches about doing that and say, you can't talk to the parents, man. They have, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk to parents to let them know what I was thinking and wh- where their kid is. This- I did a thumbnail sketch before every season to have the parents write down what their kid is all about. I didn't want to go in trying to figure out your kid. I want to know your kid where I could maximize every inch of him getting better. This, this is, I mean, this is fascinating. I mean, how much of it? So you said, when, 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 when was USC? When, in, in what years were you there at USC? I, I was at SC from 1997 to 2007, 2008. Okay, so yes. this is more of a sociological question, but I mean, here it is. Your folks, um, uh, you know, grew up during the era of you know, tremendous amount of civil injustice and, and, and lack of civil rights. And, and, and your generation really helped kind of push it over and actually makes, make some momentum. But I mean, is it, what is it hard? Was it hard? Have you seen, is it harder to connect with families because of the collapse of the nuclear family? I mean, we have tons of absentee parenting across all it's, it's, as far as I'm concerned, we are one human race so across uh-huh. all the human race, we've had a, a, a collapse in the nuclear family. How do you connect with parents if they're if if these cats are coming in tro- totally gifted, but you know they've been raised by they they've been on the streets. Well, you know, yeah, every, everybody wants love. I know my my thing my thing was love. <laughs> Me too, man. Have, my show is about love. Yeah. Yeah, I you know my parents were very loving people, very giving people. Uh, very down the earth, the salt of the earth people. So, you know, that's transferred over to me. So when I got into coaching and at SC, I wanted to have a relationship with every kid on my team. I wanted to kind of be the stepdad for every kid, if he had a dad or not. And, right. and I promised the kids one thing. You come here, you will graduate from this university. You will graduate with a degree from this university. It's a $40,000 a year uh, job you have to do. I ask you to play basketball and go to class. I'm going to give you everything else. And I told the parents, let me have your kid. You know, write that thumbnail sketch down of who your kid is. I love your kid the rest of the time. And all my kids had my phone number. They could call me anytime. I had an open-door policy for them to come in. You, you have to develop a relationship. Kids want relationships. People want relationships. And this is what I taught to my basketball players. You have a relationship with me. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I want to get the best out of you, and I'm going to tell you the truth at all the time. So you have to be able to accept the truth. My big thing is tell me the truth, and I can deal with it. So all my players knew that, that they could deal with the situation. They knew they had someone in their corner. It was the same way in the NBA. Uh, as I went in as an assistant coach. You know, my job wasn't X's and O's. My job was to get players to be the best basketball players they could be. And how do you do that? You develop a relationship with them. You know, how are your families? What's going on with your families? What's happening in your life? And and they truly can see if you're sincere about that. And I was sincere about that. 
and that's how that's how you work with with kids and work with people is to have a relationship and a concern for the outcome of their life. Not just coming in and playing basketball because everybody's not going to be a pro basketball player. It, probably not any going to be a basketball, pro basketball player. And I would tell them that. You're not going to be a pro basketball player. So what else are we going to do for you? What else are we going to do? Are you going to class? Are you going to school? What do you want to study? And each every time I would go out and talk to the alumni, I would take some of these kids with me because I wanted the alumni to see them because you know, these are good kids who are smart kids. Maybe you can help them get a job in your firm. So, And they saw that I was trying to do that. They saw the honesty that I was having. And the kids played hard for me every game, every year they played hard for me. And they were saying, why, why is your basketball team, uh, which is a football school, why are you winning? Because... They, they had love for me, and I had love for them. And everybody would go to extra mile. They would go to extra mile. I would go to extra mile. Henry, I wanted to – this is phenomenal. I mean, I, the – could you explain how we got to – again, being 39 years old and actually really kind of departing from sports in a lot of ways because of the sterility and the corporatization of it, how did how did we get to a point where, like, you're coming in and talking legitimately about – cats that are coming in trying to bust their butt on the court go to class hopefully take the tests and the exams themselves do the graduate get a gig because not everybody's going to the nba when did we start i remember ryan sandberg from the cubs got a seven-year 49 million dollar contract okay people were this was like the early 90s people were freaking out he was already a very well established major league baseball player but how has the job has did your job become harder or how did you have to adapt when all of a sudden cats were coming in um with this this is more to the pro level but where they were already given a huge amount of money up front before they had ever proven anything i mean maybe you were given a scholarship to go to ucla you were put into a beautiful home with 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 people that you learned to to love as people but you weren't getting paid. You had done nothing yet. And that's part of the issue now is the you're getting all this compensation before you've ever done anything. So you don't even know if the person's really an authentically true, truly good player or not. And I just wonder how we – if there was a defining moment that you can point to, a couple of defining moments when we got to this point of reward before any actual success. You know, it, it, I'm not exactly sure, Jake, when it started. I know – Years ago, Jim McMillan, who played for uh, Kentucky State, was drafted in the um, the ABA, which is an old, old league. And I think he signed a $600,000 contract years ago. And it started to turn a little bit during that time. Um, big business, Jake, big business, uh, big TV revenue. It's all a business now. And they go on speculation. You look at the NBA drafts this year, they drafted – one kid who averaged four points a game and four rebounds a game in the first round. So it's, they look at people now and say potentially he's going to be good. And there's so much money that's being paid, you know, and from sponsors that they can they can they can make mistakes paying these guys a lot of money. It's that much money is being made. If they can give a player two hundred million dollars to play basketball, what do you think the owner is making on that? So two hundred million dollars. $200 million is no money uh, for a team to play, pay a LeBron James when the owner's making billions and billions of dollars. People think it's a lot of money, but it's really no money in the big scheme of things. But it's, 
it's all on speculation now. I I don't know when it turned. Um, I mean, was it? Spo- uh, I mean, when you were when you were when yeah, speculation. Uh, I mean, that's that's one thing. I what I'm trying to say is okay. So it's all a business now. What? How is the game? affected in your mind by it just being a business as opposed to a passion loyalty i mean you don't even i mean when you were assisted in the pros i mean it's so transient now that you'd have some cats you know they'd come for you know the way it is they come for a year they're gone i mean you don't even back when i was growing up with the pistons back in the in the you know i was a diehard piston fan every year you knew what the backcourt was it was dumars and isaiah you had james edwards lane beer uh, Rick, Mick, Rick Mahorn, and all the, the rivalries, they had their cats too. I'm not trying to be Pollyannish, but how has the game changed by it just being speculative, business, bottom line, that? You know, there's just there's so many lawyers that got involved. There's so many... Bean, count, so many bean counters, yeah. And, yeah, yeah it, it's just so, so many people now with rules and regulations and you know, who has the upper hand that can change the rules. You know, the owners had it a couple of years ago where they had a big percentage and the players said, no, we're not going to play unless we get a certain percentage. So it, it goes back and forth on, on who has the power, who has the power to make the changes. Um, like I said, the players have, have it at times and the owners have it, it goes back and forth. Uh, but it, it boils down, the bottom line boils down to is the money side of it. Do, do the you, sponsors that are yeah. given to these teams. You know, when you, I just would like you to talk. A lot of people, uh, when you came from from high school, uh, I mean, you scored fifty points in that game, turned some heads, and they said, "Yeah, you, you know, we'll, we'll give you a shot at UCLA." When you came to UCLA, how did you have to adapt your game? What did Coach Wooden implore on you to say, "Listen, we can reach the the we can be a team of." a superior team, but we need you to do these things. Did you have to adjust your game a little bit when you got there? Yeah, because you had 15 Henry Bibbies and some better. <laughs> you know, so you, you have to make the adjustment uh, if you want to play. You know, he had a certain way he wanted to play, and you had to play the way he wanted you to play to, to fit in. I uh, remember Sidney Wicks, who was, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated Player of the Year, couldn't even play one year for him because he was trying to play the way he wanted to play and not the way Coach Wooden wanted to play. So you have to you have to make changes, and if you're a good basketball player and you're a team player, you, you make adjustments to be able to change. So I changed over from the type of player I was in high school to a better basketball player. Uh, and, and Coach Wooden taught me and taught all these other guys that's, that's on the team how to be a better basketball player. Without Coach Wooden, I'm not an NBA player. I don't play as long as I did in the NBA. I don't coach in the NBA, um, you know, if I don't have a guy like, uh, you know, John Wooden in my corner that has taught me some of the, the smaller things of life uh, and just how to tie your shoes, how to put on your socks. You know, a guy tells you, teaches you that, which I didn't know. You know, I'm a good basketball player, but I didn't know, you know, how many pair of socks to wear or what kind of shoes to wear. So he, he taught me, you know, from, from uh, my feet up how to be a, a good basketball player. And, and that's why I say you go back to the grassroots, and that's what we've gotten away from now. I mean, you ask, you ask a kid now how many pair of socks you should wear to protect your feet, and he couldn't tell you. Because I'd give you a million dollars if you could tell me how many pair of socks 
to wear, and not one kid I bet could tell you how many pair of socks to wear. Oh, I got, I got to, you got to tell me. That's, I'm fascinated. I never knew you had. There was a certain amount of how many socks do you have to wear? You should wear two pair of socks. Wow. One to absorb the sweat, and one to absorb the shock of the floor. Uh-huh. And your feet are so important because if you get a blister or anything like that, then you can't play. And that was one of Coach Wood's pet peeves. Your feet have to be ready to play when you come in. The first letter we got was, your feet have to be ready. I love this. Give me some more grassroots stuff. This is so refreshing to hear this stuff. I mean, what do you, what, what what are the – first of all, what was Wicks doing? Wicks just wanted to – he wanted to play and, get, and demand the ball? I mean, what, what was the – what was the reason why he wouldn't adapt? What was the system that wouldn't want it, and what was Wicks wanting to do? Well, he just wanted to do his type of thing. He wanted to play the way he wanted to play, and he was you know, very athletic, very talented. He came from junior college, and he was the hero. And Coach Wooden, what he was good at was you know, shaping shaping his team. Uh, and, and, again, as you, as you uh, go through basketball and you make adjustments, you're going to be shaped. You're going to be shaping to the type of player that's going to best fit the basketball team. And, and the same thing happened with me when I came from high school. I was, I was a pro, prolific scorer. Uh, I was inside and outside a lot, and I know I would drive inside and get my shot bla- blocked, and Coach Wooden used to look at me and say, Henry, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I would say, this guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. And I would go back in there again and get my shot blocked, and he would just sit there and shake his head, and eventually I knew. So, you know, he, 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 he shaped and molded me into something that I, was pa- I would pass on. You know, when my kid played in the NBA, Mike Baby played in the NBA, you never saw him drive much to the basket. Because, again, I taught him you can't get in there because they blocked your shot. So he always had a little short runner inside before the big guy could get there. So, so Coach shaped and molded me into being that type of player, and eventually – Sydney Wicks the next year was college player of the year. After not playing for one year, and coach said, you're not going to play unless you play the right way. And Sydney played the correct way, and he was the best player in college basketball the next year. I just also want to know, I mean, I, I was hanging out with this uh, amazing, gifted uh, keyboardist in Henderson, uh, Clarence McDonald, who played a lot of ball, and he was talking about Toberman's gym. Did you play a lot of – can you talk about the fierce pickup games there with, with Maurice Lucas and those cats? I mean, he was talking about – I mean, that's where all the cats would play. Well, we, we used to come out uh, here in L.A. Uh, when I was a freshman. And there was a guy named Arkansas Red. Uh, and, uh, you know, I used to go to the gym with Sidney and Curtis. This is my first time. We used to go, uh, you know, in the inner city and play basketball. And I used to shoot it so deep. And I said, man – they got a guy here, Arkansas Red, who shoots better than you. <laughs> and this this guy was unbelievable. Never heard of him, never played before in his life. You talk about the best pickup playground player there is. Wow. Shooting the basketball. Just unbelievable. 35-footers? I mean, just draining 35-footers all the time? Just draining them all the time. Oh, man. I mean, we had the best pickup games in the inner city with these guys who never played basketball before. So it's uh, – <laughs> It's been an interesting road to, to travel since, you know, coming from uh, a town of 1,300 people in the south uh, from a, a high school of 19 kids uh, in my graduation class to what, what has happened at UCLA. This, this, this is, speaking of, uh, you have this uh, new invention, Dribble Pro 3-in-1, training basketball, 
by Henry Bibby. Um, I want you to talk about that and then also the idea of, I mean, one reason I just I have a very difficult time um, watching games now is just the isolationist uh, component to basketball where you have you know guys that are just taking it they're going to take it one-on-one off the dribble and four guys are left sort of just standing around and it seemed I mean Wooden's philosophy was I, I don't know move the ball ball, um, ball everybody getting involved so can you talk about this basketball training this dribble pro dribbling and passing by Henry Bibby you go well Jake is, is uh, dribbling, dribbling, shooting, and rebounding. It's a three-in-one training tool that I that I invented uh, about four or five years ago. And uh, you know, Kobe Bryant said the last year when he when he year before last when he retired, he said we've gotten away from we've gotten away from learning how to play basketball and knowing how to play basketball. And and I had this this idea. I was saying. You know, if, if I'm going to leave something behind, if I'm going to leave a legacy behind, why not leave something that that young people uh, will remember and be able to solve a problem that they're having in playing basketball? So I, I came up with this basketball that has four nodules on it, uh, Jake, and it, it's a training tool. It, it teaches you, with me, teaches you how to dribble, how to keep your hand on top of the basketball, how to control the basketball. It teaches you how to hold the basketball to shoot it the correct way. It teaches you that. Um, if you put your hands on one of these nodules and you hold it incorrectly, or if it hits one, hit the backboard and it hits one of these four nodules that's on there, it's going to bounce away from you. Wow. So, you know, this, it gives you, this basketball, you know, gives you self-confidence, uh, you play with a purpose the whole time, which a lot of kids don't. It teaches you how to play with a purpose. It it puts you in a, a better balance for footwork, uh, where you're in the proper stance all the time. Uh, self-discipline, uh, it, you know, it helps you to use your imagination, and that's what it's all about. And it's, it's fun. Uh, so it's a fun game, and, and we learn we learn things through fun. And, and this basketball teaches them that, you go out and you dribble with it. You don't even think you're getting better, but you, when you get a regular basketball, you're going to get better because it's, it's muscle memory that, that you use with, with this basketball. And when you're dribbling, dribbling this basketball, Jake, your, your eyes become your hands, and you don't have to look at the basketball anymore. So, I, you know, I think I've taken it back to Dr. Naismith years ago when he invented the basketball in 1891. I think I'm right there with him and. <laughs> <laughs> and then this training tool that will have an impact on on kids who want to get better and who parents are saying, I want my kid to have the edge. I want my kid to be competitive. I want my kid to be better than your kid. This is something that you, you, you go on and I think buy. I would buy it. I, a quick story. My son, Mike Baby, who played 14 years in the NBA uh, when he was growing up, they had these jumping shoes. And he couldn't jump you know, over paper. So I, I got him this, these jumping shoes. He ended up improving his, his jumping four to five inches in a matter of three or four months using this, this uh, jumping tool. And it cost me $125. I couldn't afford it, but my thinking was I want my kid to be competitive. I want my kid to be better than your kid. 
So what is an investment of $125? This is an investment of $89.99, Jake, and you're training with me every day. You're training with a guy of 40 years' experience who played in the NBA for nine years, who a college All-American, three NCAA championships, an NBA championship, uh, a CBA championship in minor leagues. So I've been around basketball, so I have an idea of what kids need to do to get better. And this is what this does, Jake. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to unpack this thing. You said something inter- interesting. You said, I, "I I I teach cats to play with a purpose." Uh, my generation, younger generations, purpose could mean on the court. Uh, okay, I don't really care how many what pairs of socks I have. I just need to get my 25 points. I need to get my six at least 16 looks at the basket, um, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll get the victory. But that's my purpose. What do you mean by purpose? Purpose is. When you're out on the floor, being able to do things you want to do that enables your team to win, that's what it's all about. It's not about individual performances. So the purpose we have is to make people around us better. That's the whole definition of purpose. Uh, When I'm coaching, my purpose is to, to bring everyone together to make it better. And it's the same thing that goes in basketball. The purpose is... I'm going to perfect what I do, and I'm going to make everyone around me better. And, of course, I'm going to be better in the process of doing this. So there's a purpose to this, not just going out playing basketball and saying that I can dribble. You know, everybody says, well, I can dribble. I know how to shoot. I know how to rebound. No, you don't. When you start playing with a purpose, it's going to really become easy after using this dribble pro and you go back, Jake, and you start using a regular basketball. It's like night and day. <laughs> Unbelievable. It, it, January 23rd, 1971, you were number one in the country. You went to South Bend, Indiana, which probably was not very far from Coach Wooden's hometown, and you lost to Notre Dame. Do you remember that? Do you remember that game? 80, 89, 82? I remember that game. Did, did that sting? I, Wood, I mean, how did, did, did they just... What was Wooden's reaction? That must have stung a little bit because that was his home home turf there. Well, you know, like I say, Coach Wooden never talked about winning, never talked about losing. Mm. I never heard him say the word win or lose in my four years of being at UCLA. Never did. So he his whole thing was we want to be competitive. We want to do the right things. We want to be fundamentally sound. And whatever the outcome is going to be, it's going to be successful for us. So, but again, like I said at the top of the show, Jake, he wanted games to be close, or he wanted us to lose a game to get back on track. So, if if you look at all the games that we played and the games were were close or we lost, we lost the games right before we would go into the Pack Eight, which was at that time, uh, the Pack Eight playing. So. In the process of doing that psychologically, he was so smart that, you know, we will win 12, 13 games in preseason. Now we go into the conference play. He didn't want to lose any conference games. So we would lose or be close during the the, uh, non-conference schedule. And once the season started, that's when we blew up and we got better. And that's what kind of happened in Indiana. I'm not taking anything away. I'm sorry, from Notre Dame. I'm not taking anything away from them. They were a great, great basketball team. But in, in, in the process, that propelled us to be a better basketball team and losing that. That was a big streak. I think we won 
don't know, 47 games or something like that that year going into that. And after that, the streak went on long after that. But, again, that's kind of something he wanted us to do is to have a little scare. Uh, but we met a, a, a great team in uh, Austin Carr. He was just unbelievable that day and, and just unstoppable. What, what kind of tunes were you – I mean, L.A. was a hot – you came after the Watts riots, which were kind of a, a very, very intense time uh, and and, and uh, impacting sociological time in Southern California. But what kind of tunes were you guys checking out, uh, you know, in the um, uh, in the greater Los Angeles area? There was so much vibrancy between – you go back to Harlem. Sugar Ray Robinson had a barbershop in Harlem. You had West Montgomery and all these cats playing beautiful – melodic improvisation what, what what kind of music was henry bibby checking out uh on your day on your downtime <laughs> you know that's you know i listened to that today at, like it was in 1972 and 68 uh the emotions uh curtis macy oh yeah oh my god the impressions <laughs> yeah unbelievable yeah, impression, man al green the temptations uh, you know, Rick James, you know, all, all these are my people. I, I love the, the Dells, the Delphonics, you know, I, it's just unbelievable listening to those guys. And, and, uh, you know, like you say, West Montgomery was big at the time and jazz, a couple of the jazz people, I can't think off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, David Sanborn, uh, you know, people like that. Um, uh, just great. Did you get to, did you get to see miles or, or train at all? I didn't see them. I know John Coltrane. I had a lot of his albums, those albums. You know, we didn't get the DVDs. We got the albums. The LPs, absolutely. You had those transcendent, burning, spiritual albums that he was making with Elvin Jones and all those cats? Oh, my God. Yeah, had those. Listen to all those. You know, he was, you know, just unbelievable what what they would be playing and how it sounded and how how we heard it. It was totally different. So, you know, it's really, uh, you know, sad that we can't, uh, we can't find find music like that anymore so it's a totally different era of that music now that that we don't have anymore so you know i go to the internet and i listen to that all the time those guys well there's something also about i mean the the soul train soul train was good too jake soul train don cornelius so the unbelievable no but i mean like like literally i mean there were so many places to go see live music that's the thing it was it would hit your soul it would touch your soul And that's the thing you, you 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 can't get that on YouTube today. And then the fact that they stifle that whatever you gentrify certain places and you know and you stifle that culture, and then cats don't know where their roots are. That's I, I guess two, a couple questions before I let you go. Um, you, if you don't know where you came from, then you don't know where you're going. And I'm curious, right. do do younger uh, younger cats today? have an understanding or curiosity about their roots, specifically African-American cats, about the roots of the history of this country? Do they, do they, have, do they have the curiosity to want to know where they came from in order to know where they're going? Because in my mind, you can't really have a social consciousness movement without the sophistication of knowing your roots. And I just want to know how strong you think the roots are amongst today's younger peeps. Well, you know, Jake, it's not being taught again. It's, it's like basketball. Was it ever taught though? Taught. I mean, your parents taught you. It, or, you it, know, it's, it's never it, it's never been taught in the school system, and I don't think it will be. Uh, you know, I don't think black history will ever be taught 
the way it should be taught. Um, uh, it's never, never been. I, I never had really, I never had any black history growing up, you know, never. You know, Booker T. Washington, uh, Dubai, you know, you, you never found that. Um, you, you never, you, you read about just a little bit, uh, the inventions uh, of the black people, it never came out. No, I mean, I mean let's let's just be very clear. The motherland, okay, the first universities in Africa, the banjo, all the mu- all the musical instruments in Africa, uh, right. medicines in Africa, and that's the thing is they have a Black History Month every year. It started when I was in in yeah. school. Why, why not just? Isn't that part of U.S. history? I guess the point is that do you sense? Is the, there was an urgency, man, back when you were at UCLA? As far as I'm concerned, you had the Panthers, you had you know the, the Muslims, yeah. you had so many different outlets. You had the US organizations. I've woodshedded with all these musicians. You could channel this stuff, and so yeah. do you find yourself adding that as a component, or is it too? Is that just too much of a? Is that too outside the realm of of basketball for you? I mean, at this point, you talk about leaving a legacy. I mean, the legacy is teach your children well right that that's what it should be again that we've we've gotten away from the basics of everything that would that we're doing now and and there's just so much emphasis put on the business side of what everybody does you look at all the music that's created by the hip-hop rappers now it's, a, it's about the money it's about making money it's not about talking about the culture anymore it's about uh making money in blame. That's what things have come to. Uh, where does it stop? Where does it go? I don't know. I, it's, we've just gotten away from that. The, um, Teaching. Well, Teaching the, the other thing is that you, you, you know, Curtis Mayfield didn't have a hit record until like, you know, his third or fourth album. Bruce Springsteen didn't have a hit record. Um, can you talk about the danger of not allowing true talent to be cultivated? You're going to rush these cats off the stage. They get 15-second tryouts. I mean, I'm amazed that LeBron James – I mean, I remember Michael Jordan played a pickup game with him back when high school, and he said, this guy's going to be an incredible player. He's one, in, he's one out of – you know, he, he, he's a needle in a haystack. I mean, what is the danger, uh, Henry, when you don't allow your true nature to be truly cultivated? There was such a – we don't have any patience anymore. It's – a bottom line thing: if you don't hit it, you're do- you're gone, and that's pretty demoralizing for a lot of people, uh, you know, in general. Because a lot of the, you know, it wasn't like you guys were robots. It took you a while to find your groove. You don't let that happen anymore. No, I you know, but again, hopefully, uh, the young young people have the drive because you are going to get knocked down, and uh, you just got to get back up and start again. You can't you can't give up. You can't quit. Uh, and there's someone ready to take your place right away, but you got to keep battling with it. But you don't you don't get a second chance too many times this day and time. It's it's you know what are you doing today? What are you, are you making it happen today that we can we can make some money? That's what it's all about. The big businesses are looking at it that way. They give you one chance, one shot, uh, and that's it. Um, before I let you go, I just really need you to. Tell me a little bit about. Uh, tell me a, a a good, a really good Bill Walton story. <laughs> <laughs> because because that guy, I mean, I'm thinking he might have taken you to to a couple of Grateful Dead concerts, as far as I know. But I I, I really need to know what that cat brought to the flavor he brought to the team, 
and ultimately just give me a really good story because, uh, I mean, I'm just having a ball right now. <laughs> Bill was a different character. He, um, he, he was against the war, uh, the Vietnam War, like a lot of people were, sure. but he was more outspoken about that. And I remember one day uh, Bill was late coming to practice, and uh, Coach Wooden was all over him. And, and uh, Coach said, Bill, where, where you, why are you late? Where you been? He said, Coach, I was at the city and up on campus against the, the Vietnam War. Coach, are you supposed to be at practice? <laughs> he said, Coach, I, I think that's more important than being being at practice. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Bill, Bill walked to a different tune, but he, he brought a flavor to the team that we didn't have. You're talking about a great basketball player. Oh, what an unbelievable basketball player. And more so than that, he, he was a, he's a great human being. And that's what I liked about him. Uh, he and I uh, go back years and years. We have a relationship for the rest of our life, and I have the utmost respect for Bill. Can you explain the his what he brought to the team from a, a playing point of view uh, that allowed you to grow even more when he was healthy? Well, you know, he, he was probably the best shot blocker I've seen uh, and, and probably the best you know, outlet passer other than Wes Unsell. Really? Wow. Uh, to, ever, wow. to ever play the game. Yeah, he just, just knew how to play. I mean, just a smart player, knew how to play. And I didn't have to play any defense when he was on the floor because <laughs> I would filter everything to the basket, and he would block it. And I would just get out and run. And no, you would just leak out. And he, so it was a perfect thing. He'd just shovel, he'd block a shot, throw you the outlet pass, and you'd be off to the races. Off to the races, and, you know, that was it. Bill was that type of player, and. And just a, a winner, you know, would do whatever it takes to win the basketball game. Uh, that's what I loved about playing with Bill. Just a, just a total winner. Uh, and that whole team we had, you know, with Jamal Wilts and Larry Farmer and all those guys, uh, they were all winners. So how do you lose? You can't lose with guys like that. <laughs> you can't lose with uh, Henry Bibby. Man, I've, you know, we've been cooking here 55 minutes, man. I had such a ball with you, man. And I, I am, like I said, I've done over 1,000 interviews with Serious luminary artist, but I'm trying to trying to connect back with the the older guard of of, of the athletes. So uh, anybody you can hit to, to me, I'd really appreciate. it. I just want to keep growing as a broadcaster, and uh, I just had a ball with you, man. I thank you for taking the time today. Well, I have your number, and I'll pass it on to some of the the old buddies here, and and uh, they get in touch with you. Okay. Thank you, my man. It was great to hear you. You too, Jake. Thank you. Bye, Henry. Okay. Take care, brother. Bye. Bye. Legendary uh, uh, player, NBA basketball player, uh, coach, and um, and teacher Henry Bibby still trying to pass on the lineage of the the game of basketball, getting back to the roots of basketball, and ultimately um, trying to educate and inspire uh, during this time. Uh, we will be back at one o'clock uh, with uh, Jay Messina. And, uh, and following that, Julian Priester. Uh, for now, this is the Jake Feinberg Show, and we'll be back in a little bit.